Brian McClanahan Show, episode 190. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media buttons at the top of my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Also, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You'll get put on my email list, which you'll get emails regularly, uh, sometimes a couple times a week, sometimes more than that. In fact, if you're on the email list right now, you're getting more emails from me because we have a great deal going on at Liberty Classroom. If you subscribe to Liberty Classroom through my affiliate link, learntruehistory.com, learntruehistory.com, you will not only get, if you subscribe at the master level, I should say, at learntruehistory.com, you not only get Tom's deal, which is $200 off and, of course, access to his Ron Paul curriculum, homeschool curriculum, but I'll also give you uh, a free McClanahan Academy course, either Secession or the Declaration of Independence, and then you'll be registered for a drawing for one of the other great courses, which is the War for Southern Independence or American Constitutions. You'll get one winner out of that. So uh, your chances are pretty good of winning uh, right now. And this uh, deal goes through today, Cyber Monday. If you're listening to this on Cyber Monday, which, of course, is November 26th, you are still eligible to get the deal. So it only goes through midnight Pacific on November 26th. You got to register through uh, for a master level membership at learntruehistory.com, and then send me confirmation of that. And of course, once you do that, I will uh, send over the link to the free course, and uh, of your choice, you get to pick one or the other, and then you register for the drawing. So you could get more. You get more out of the deal just by signing up through my affiliate link. And of course, uh, you can't get those McClanahan Academy courses anywhere else. Uh, they're only available at mclanahanacademy.com. So if you don't want to do that and you just want to buy a McClanahan Academy course, go out to mclanahanacademy.com, sign up for free, and then also uh, get your McClanahan Academy courses there. And, of course, you can always support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way. I'll help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Uh, anything is appreciated. All right, well, I want to talk about um, a couple of things today. One I actually covered all the way back in Episode 5 of the Brian McClanahan Show, and that that particular episode focused on Andrew Johnson. And uh, Andrew Johnson, I think, is one of the most underrated presidents in American history. In fact, I consider him to be one one of the best presidents in American history if you rate the presidents based on their oath of office. Now, we can talk about Johnson's views on race. We can talk about Johnson's views on all kinds of things. But... Uh, there wasn't much difference between Johnson and, and Abraham Lincoln, particularly in, in regard to his view of Reconstruction and how the Union should be put back together. Um, that is one thing that people often overlook. It's not a question that's really asked. Um, would Lincoln have done the exact same thing had he survived April 1865? Would he have been able to be successful in his plan of Reconstruction, which was very lenient? compared to what the Radical Republicans in Congress wanted to do. And so the reason I want to talk about that particular issue again today is a piece that appeared in Politico um, a couple of weeks ago. I just haven't had time to talk about it. We've had Thanksgiving break, and I pre-recorded a bunch of podcasts, and so 
Um, I, I want to get into this piece because it's it's a piece by David Priest, and it's entitled "How a Difficult." No, I'm sorry, that's that's the subtitle. No, that is the title. Excuse me. How a difficult, racist, racist, stubborn president was removed from power, if not from office. And it has to do with Andrew Johnson. And so Priest has uh, written a book about this. And this is a, a promotional piece for his book, which is entitled um, uh, How to Get Rid of a President. Um, and... It's, an, of course, an attack on Trump. I mean, that's the entire point of this book. It was, it was published with the sole purpose of outlining how to get rid of what he says. If you look at the concluding paragraph, what he says is an unfit or unpopular president. So in his mind, Trump is both unpopular and unfit. And this is how you cut the power of the president. You just go and look at what the Congress did to Andrew Johnson. What he does not do in this particular piece is explain how Johnson was following the Constitution and how the radical Republicans were not and how the, the legislation that Johnson vetoed over and over again was unconstitutional. He was perfectly constitutionally accurate in that particular position. As Johnson went through his time in office and as he vetoed, continually vetoed, Republican legislation, there was no question this legislation was unconstitutional according to the original Constitution. You see, that's the catch. We have to understand that Johnson was doing exactly what the Democrats had said they wanted to do before the war. And Johnson was a Democrat. He stayed loyal to the Union. He didn't secede with Tennessee. He stayed in his seat from Tennessee, East Tennessee. And so he was put on the ticket to invite Southerners to vote for this fusion ticket in 1864. Um, Lincoln could have put a radical Republican on the ticket to try to encourage more Northerners to vote for the, the Union ticket there, but he put Johnson on the ticket on purpose, hoping that Johnson would somehow invite uh, perhaps some of the individuals who had taken the oath of allegiance to come back into the Union and invite those people. And what, what I think Lincoln was trying to do, and I'm going to talk about a very important book on this subject, and I agree wholeheartedly, what Lincoln was trying to do was create a new political party. Lincoln was not a radical Republican. I mean, we, there's no, I'm no fan of Abraham Lincoln. I've pointed that out. He's in one of my, he's one of the presidents who screwed up America because of his, his ultimate policies is, uh, and and going after the South destroyed the Constitution that he was pledging to preserve. So I mean, the Constitution was going to be destroyed. I, I don't think Lincoln was had the foresight to see that that's exactly what would happen because he opened a Pandora's box. It could not be closed once that happened. But Lincoln was trying, in his own way, to close that box. I think at one point, at the end of the war, he realized it. The radicals had become uh, 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 obstructive. He couldn't work with them any longer. And so Lincoln was trying to forge a new party in 1864, and that would have carried forward had he not been assassinated in 1865. Um, and so this piece is interesting because he, it's obvious that Priest has no understanding of the Constitution. He does say at one point that when Johnson sacked Stanton, who was a Secretary of War, when he sacked Stanton, uh, this was the Tenure of Office Act was dubious constitutionally. But he doesn't say, well, look, this, this should have been done. I mean, 
he doesn't say that the president should not have been impeached for doing this. He just says the Congress impeached the House impeached him anyways, went to trial. He doesn't he doesn't make any comment that this shouldn't have happened. This was an abuse of power. This is exactly what he should be saying here. It was an abuse of power. The Tenure of Office Act was completely unconstitutional. Now there was some question. I mean, we could go back to the original, to the first Congress and talk about, and I do this, and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. How there was some question as to if the president, we know the president has to have congressional approval to appoint cabinet members, but does he have to have a congressional approval to remove cabinet members? And this was, that position was outright rejected in that first Congress. So here we have the, the uh, war Congress saying, no, 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 this is the constitutionally correct position to take. The president has to have congressional authority to remove members of the cabinet. Of course, the Supreme Court correctly declared this unconstitutional in the 20th century. But at the time, Johnson was impeached for violating the Tenure of Office Act. Johnson was doing his job. Edwin Stanton was uh, a snake. Edwin Stanton was staying in office, as Priest gleefully points out, to try to obstruct what the president was doing as president and his constitutional responsibilities. He was a, a snake. He was a viper. This was a guy that would go rat out Johnson. He'd run to the members of Congress and say, this is what Johnson's doing, just so they could try to work on blocking what he was trying to do. And, of course, he also praises U.S. Grant for doing the exact same thing and refusing appointments. Um, Grant did say that he had, would have to follow the orders of, of the president, but at the same time he was directly contradicting what the president was doing in the South, by issuing military orders that were not, uh, were, did not directly come from Johnson and were the exact opposite of what Johnson wanted Grant to do. There was Now, my point at all this in saying there was really no difference between what Johnson was doing in terms of Reconstruction and what Lincoln would have done in terms of Reconstruction. How do we know this? Because Lincoln had already put forward his Reconstruction plan before he was killed, the 10% plan which allowed for states to re-enter the Union if simply 10% of the voting electorate took the oath of allegiance to the United States and agreed to whatever congressional policies uh, were, were put into a place in terms of uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and any future policies dealing with slavery. But this was happening. I mean, this, this happened in Louisiana. And when, when Louisiana, for example was readmitted to the Union under the 10% plan, Lincoln wanted Louisiana to be able to vote on a prospective 13th Amendment, which, of course, would have abolished slavery and did abolish slavery. But Lincoln wanted that state to be able to vote on it because it was a state. under a, has a state legislature. It's operating as a state. The state's no longer in, rebe in rebellion, according to Lincoln. The radicals said no. They didn't think that state should be able to vote on it. So this is where you get into the constitutional issues about Reconstruction. When is a state not a state? Can the Congress kick a state out, or can the Congress say you're a territory or a province? And I would say no. And can a state that's not a state ratify an amendment? Which, of course, what was Johnson, what Johnson was saying, they cannot do. You can't say a state, you can't tell a state it has to rewrite its constitution if these states were never really out of the Union. The general government cannot do that. It's constitutionally dubious. Johnson was following the Constitution, but yet this idiot, Priest, is somehow saying, well, Johnson was unfit. Johnson was a drunkard. 
Johnson couldn't do any. Johnson made rambling speeches. Johnson did all these things wrong. Where Johnson was following his, his constituted authority, he was obeying his oath of office to veto unconstitutional legislation. Now, looking back on it in 2018, we can say, well, this was, I mean, yeah, Johnson was racist. Of course he was. So was Abraham Lincoln. You couldn't find uh, probably more than about 10% of the American population who wasn't a racist in 1865 just didn't exist. Uh, so to, to knock Johnson for that is to, is to be uh, in, in, to have this presentist view of history that simply doesn't work as a historian. You can't do that. I mean Johnson was who he was at the time. These were generally and widely accept, accepted views on race relations in the United States, not just in the South but also in the North. And we know this because, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that the South was denied the vote in 1868, and what I mean by that is that Southerners, the disfranchisement of Southerners, Grant would not have won the presidency. The majority of America was actually against a U.S. Grant presidency. Uh, and would have been so again in 1872 had the Democrats even nominated anybody that was worth their salt, but they nominated Republican. So um, the fact is, by 1876, it's clear that this, the views of the Democrats and then the very conservative Northerners were the dominant view in America. Because the uh, Democrats, the, the South had finally, uh, Southerners had finally been allowed to vote again by 1876, and Samuel Tilden wins the popular vote. This is not often, I mean, I don't see these current uh, lefties running around saying, well... Why wasn't Samuel Tilden president? I mean, he won the popular vote. They don't do it because that's not a guy they would want. They would want Hayes over Tilden. So they don't, they don't criticize the 1876 election, just the current ones. You know, it's, it's selective criticism. Uh, but it's clear that the majority of, of Americans, and all I'm saying by that, the Electoral College worked the way it's supposed to there, but the majority of Americans in 1876 were opposed to the radical Republicans. And even in that Republican faction, I would suggest that probably still the majority of those Republicans were just as racist as Andrew Johnson. Heck, Abraham Lincoln was. There's no evidence that Abraham Lincoln ever, ever uh, rebuked his earlier positions that he thought that uh, on race relations and what he said in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I know people will run, well, yeah, but, but he said he, he was changing his mind. Uh, by no, and <laughs> Lincoln said... At the Hampton Roads Peace Conference, that when he was asked about what are we going to do with the slaves, well, they're going to root hog or die. He wasn't interested in somehow solving racial strife in America in 1865. They were going to have to fend for themselves. And if they couldn't do that, they would just die. Now, I say all that because this piece, of course, made the rounds. And, and again, Priest is doing this because he wants to promote his book. Uh, which I wouldn't spend even bargain price on to get. But regardless, um, I want to talk about a, a more important book, one that I think uh, is not written with any, wasn't written with any type of political animus. It was simply a discussion of Lincoln's policies at the end of the war in regard to Reconstruction. This book was published by the University of Virginia. So, not uh, not some you know 
Vanity Press. People often bash my books because they're published by Regnery. Uh, and they're not published by University Press. But this is University of Virginia Press, 2009. So not, I mean, this book wasn't published, you know, 1950s, where you could say, well, yeah, University of Virginia Press was, was racist in the 50s. This was published in 2009. It's written by a man named Paul Escott. And Paul Escott is um, Reynolds Professor of History at Wake Forest University. Uh, he's published nine books on the war. He is, or or, in Reconstruction, uh, he is as establishment as you can get when it comes to the historical profession. He is uh, not somebody that um, is somehow a fringe, you know, or I know I'm often called that. I'm a, I'm a fringe historian or a hack historian. People have called me that uh, because I hold the same positions that Paul Escott holds. I mean, this is how stupid this, this stuff is because of where I publish and the books that I publish. I think sometimes... Um, some of that is jealousy because of the fact that uh, when academics publish books, they sell like five copies. Uh, and when you publish through popular presses and do popular history like I do, uh, it sells a lot more. Um, and so there is some of that. But um, I want to get into the one of the chapters, one of the last chapters that... Um, that he deals with this Hampton Road Conference. Now, if the Hampton Road Conference, of course, took place right near, right near early 1865, near the end of the war. And the idea was that, as Lincoln said, if the South would simply lay down their arms, um, they could come right back in the Union. And one of the interesting parts of that particular conference was what Lincoln said about the 13th Amendment. And we our account of that particular conversation, there was no written documentation of the actual event, no, no uh, transcript from what Lincoln and Seward and Alexander H. Stevens talked about. But Stevens was interviewed quickly after the conference, directly after the conference, as the Augusta Chronicle and Sentinel said, and asked what was said at the conference. And uh, I think this is an interesting part of Lincoln's politics. And it's something that Escott says no one really even asks these questions because they just take it as for granted that Lincoln would have been in favor of the radical Republican policies had he lived. It's clear that Lincoln wouldn't have been. It's clear that Lincoln and Johnson had the same agenda. And so, as I pointed out in, in podcast in my episode five of my podcast, would Lincoln have been held into such high esteem had he not been killed in April of 1865? Would we have regarded Lincoln as such a great president? Would he have had the Lincoln Memorial and all the other tributes to Abraham Lincoln had he survived and served out until 1868? I would argue no, that Lincoln would have been vilified, demonized, unless he was able to cobble together the political party that he was trying to cobble together in 1864. Because, you see, if Lincoln survives, he might be able to get that to work, and therefore he could emasculate the radical Republicans, because he did have more political capital than Johnson. There's no doubt about that. Johnson came in, he's a Democrat, he's an afterthought, and these radicals thought they could bully and push him around, and they did, in, in the way that, not how 
you would think, because Johnson kept vetoing their legislation. So they weren't doing anything like that, but they were overriding his vetoes. Now, they could have done the exact same thing to Abraham Lincoln, but because Lincoln was presiding over the war and won the war, I'm not so certain they would have been able to get away with it as frequently as they did uh, with Andrew Johnson. Now, that said, when the Congress passed the Wade-Davis bill, that was a clear refutation of the Lincoln Reconstruction agenda. And you would have had that conflict coming had Lincoln survived. But um, I want to read some of the some of this Escott book because, it, again, this is not coming from me, the hack historian. This is coming from Paul Escott, who is uh, a distinguished professor at Wake Forest University. Right Now, I don't believe I'm a hack historian, and I guess I would hope you don't either. But this is what some of the idiots in the profession have called me. So, quote, since no transcript of the conversations at Hampton Roads exists, it is impossible to prove definitively that Lincoln did or did not utter these words. And what were the words? That Lincoln had promised to postpone or defer the 13th Amendment or even allow the South to reject it. He says there's no proof. But one test of the question rests on Alexander Stevens' veracity. The Southern vice president was a well-known political veteran who enjoyed a good personal reputation. He apparently was respected by Lincoln, his former congressional colleague, who chose Stevens as a recipient of an important letter during the secession crisis. Unless critics of Stevens can demonstrate that he was a liar and his 1865 words untrustworthy, the scales inclined toward accepting Stevens' account. So unless you can prove he was a liar... now. This is where the entire lost cause myth rests, you see. Because essentially what they're saying is that Stevens is a liar. Everyone in the South is a liar. Everything they said after the war was over was a liar. They were lying about everything. Everybody that was writing about the war from the South was a liar. Everything they said was a lie. But they don't have proof of that. Now, of course, when Stevens writes his... Uh, constitutional view of the war between the states um, after the war is over. And he essentially minimizes the importance of slavery as a moral conflict. He talks about it as a political conflict um, within the larger context of the issues. Uh, Then people will say, well, he's lying there. No, he's not. Remember, Stevens opposed secession. Um, and this is where we get into this whole conflict, whole discussion of, you know, how it, wh- why was slavery important in 1860 and 61? And uh, why wasn't it important in 1860 and 61? So he wasn't lying. And here's Escott, Paul Escott, saying, well, I don't think he was a liar. <clears throat> in addition, one can evaluate the positions attributed to Lincoln for their level of agreement with his stated policies. Was Southern rejection of the 13th Amendment conceivable or permissible under Lincoln's established policies? This is Paul Escott. The record shows that it was. In his annual address to Congress in December 1864, Lincoln has stated that the rebels could have peace, quote, at any moment, simply by laying down their arms and submitting to the national authority under the Constitution. The war would stop immediately, and any remaining questions then would be adjusted by, quote, legislation, conference, courts, and votes operating only in constitutional and lawful channels. 
The Constitution contained no language penalizing or punishing seceded states. Within constitutional channels, the southern states would presumably have their rights and be able to vote on the amendment. That's Paul Escott saying that. That's Abraham Lincoln's stated policies. So the South would have been able to reject the 13th Amendment. Lincoln was fine, in other words, of letting that amendment die. And Escott goes further. Moreover, Lincoln's policy on re-admitting states was clear. Since December 1863, he had been trying to revive, quote-unquote, revive the southern state governments quickly through the 10% plan. This plan required no changes in the constitutions or character of the southern state governments and encouraged Confederates to adopt, quote, temporary arrangements for the freed people. It called merely for a speedy reestablishment of state governments once 10% of pre-war votes had taken an oath of future loyalty and promised to abide by Congress's laws on slavery and the Emancipation Proclamation as interpreted by the courts. All of this suggested that the southern states could re-enter the, indeed re-enter the Union with dispatch. Once restored to the nation, they would be able to vote on a proposed amendment. The distance between this policy and Stevens's recollection that the states would be immediately restored was not great. Uh, and this is this is Paul Escott. This is not some you know crazy uh, neo Confederate on the internet. This is Paul Escott in a book that's just now a decade old, not even a decade old. Lincoln had held to this plan and made his position on ratification even clearer after the Hampton Roads Conference. On April 11, 1865, in his final public address, he continued to defend his maligned and unpopular 10% government in Louisiana and argued that it should be allowed to vote on the 13th Amendment. Some members of Congress were contending that only the loyal states should vote on ratification. Though Lincoln did not go so far as to commit himself irrevocably against the idea, he disparaged it, saying that, quote, such a ratification would be questionable and sure to be persistently questioned. On the other hand, he argued, quote, ratification by three-fourths of all the states would be unquestioned and unquestionable. Allowing re-established rebel states to vote on the 13th Amendment was his preferred, consistent, and public position. So here is Lincoln saying, yeah, all these states... And we're going to have them back in the Union very quickly. This is exactly what Andrew Johnson did when he took office. Hey, all the states are back. They can vote on anything. They can have members of Congress. Lincoln was doing this stuff, too. Lincoln was fully committed to that plan in early 1865. At Hampton Roads, Lincoln acted on his own admonition to the nation to build a peace, quote, with malice toward none, with charity toward all. Even though victory was at hand at the, and the end of the war virtually in sight, Lincoln wanted to reconcile with rebellious Confederates. He offered Southern leaders substantial incentives to rejoin the Union, for he wanted their participation in the work of reunion. He wanted them to take part in and contribute to reunion rather than to oppose it at every step. His, his positions would have been surprising and objectionable to many Northerners, and Lincoln's approach relegated the interests of black Southerners to a subordinate place. But the fact is that the president's actions were consistent with his policies and with his attitude throughout the war. The attitude that reunion was paramount and emancipation a means to that end. In other words, Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson's positions were indistinguishable. And here you have priests saying, oh, Johnson was, uh, he was unpopular, unfit. 
would he have called Abraham Lincoln unfit for pursuing the same exact things? Because I can guarantee you, Abraham Lincoln would have been vetoing some of the same exact legislation had he lived past April of 1865. There's no question. His, his, his public positions speak to this point, as Paul Escott says. In addition, Seward's comments on the 13th Amendment were not only consistent with reports about Lincoln, but also striking. And they have been strikingly neglected by historians. Both Campbell and Stevens attributed to Seward the belief that slavery would not be prohibited in the United States by constitutional amendment. Campbell remembered Seward saying that it was probable that the amendment was, as a war measure, would be abandoned, quote-unquote abandoned, upon the arrival of peace. And Stevens recalled Seward's trying to lure the Confederates towards surrender by pointing out that they could vote on the amendment and thus block it if they promptly laid down their arms. Neither account mentions any objection by Lincoln to Seward's remarks, and neither records of any kind of expressed disagreement from the president. Neither records any kind of expressed disagreement from the president. Excuse me. Lincoln allowed Seward's comments to stand unchallenged. <laughs> End quote. This is from Paul Escott. Okay. So not from, again, some crazy right-wing radical on the internet, not from some neo-Confederate who's out there pushing a neo-Confederate agenda, but from Paul Escott, distinguished historian at Wake Forest University. The funny thing is, we have, um, and I think this is clear of what social media has done to history, and it's why I call them the Twitter historians. Because anytime somebody makes a statement, you have the Twitter historians immediately go on and start saying, oh, this is just incorrect. Oh, this is wrong. This is just, this is all the treason, treason, slavery, race. And yet here you have an establishment historian. It's not all establishment historians are bad. And a lot of them, and now Escott is establishment of establishment. He is against everything he's writing about here, but he is trying to understand the position. Um, and he's trying to gain an understanding of who Abraham Lincoln really was. Um, so, the title of this book, by the way, if you want to pick it up, it's titled, What Shall We Do with the Negro? Lincoln, White Racism, and Civil War America. So, he is perfectly consistent with the modern trend of race studies, uh, memory studies, these type of things. But he's he's putting Lincoln, casting Lincoln in a light, where, and he goes on to conclude in the book, Lincoln was trying to cobble together a party that would have included Southern Democrats, people like Andrew Johnson, conservative Republicans, people like the Blairs, who were just as racist as Andrew Johnson, into a dominant political party that would have controlled the Union. Essentially, what Lincoln was trying to do is recreate the Whig Party um, without the issue of slavery involved. And he was trying to, put, to, to create this party because it would have dominated the Union. Now, I'm not so certain he would have been able to get all the Democrats on board because of political economy, because of his insistence on tariffs and banking and all those things. But certainly, um, his, it would have been more like a John Bell Constitutional Union Party. I think Lincoln, if you want to be serious about Lincoln, had, had realized he made a mistake, sort of, um, in, the, in the process. He realized he made a mistake. And so um, he was trying to go back and say, all right, well, look, uh, we, need, we need to figure this out. The radicals, we can't let them take over government because they're going to completely mess everything up. So we have to do something else. Um, and this is why Johnson was on the ticket. And this is why I think Johnson was surprised by the pushback he got when he started uh, implementing Lincoln's essential, poli essential policies when it came to Reconstruction. 
He was surprised by that. And when he started vetoing legislation that he didn't unconstitutional, I think well, Lincoln pocket vetoed the Wade Davis bill. So Lincoln was trying to put his stamp on Reconstruction, and he was saying this is the executive branch's job, not the Congress's job, even before the end of the war. So the, the, the conflict between Lincoln and the Congress would have come just as it came between Johnson and Lincoln. So this whole piece by Price is just, or Priest is just completely ridiculous. Uh, and, and it's a politically motivated hack piece. It is a hack piece. Um, and it's, it's bad history because it doesn't take into account the fact that Johnson was simply just doing what Johnson was constitutionally required to do in vetoing unconstitutional legislation. The same thing Lincoln probably would have done had he lived past April 1865. All right, I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. (laughs) 